welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. As we close out 2021 and look towards 2022, we are pleased to present this mini-series of podcasts that will review key developments over the past year across a number of important geographic regions, industries, and specialisms. And we'll look ahead to consider what the next 12 months might bring. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Welcome back to this International Arbitration Horizon Scanning Series. And hello, everyone. My name is Sashin Kura. I'll be joined by members of Reed Smith's international arbitration team here in the Middle East to look back at some of the key developments over this last year in arbitration regionally and look forward to 2022 and what that may bring for the industry. So let's get started. And I'm joined by my colleagues, Michelle Nelson and Chris Edwards. We'll crack straight on and I'll ask Michelle to provide us with some highlights of the developments in the arbitration industry locally when it came to the nationalization of the industry, as we put it, through 2021, because there have been some very prominent developments. Michelle. Yes, thank you, Sachin. There's certainly been change in the last few months. Basically, what happened here in Dubai was that the Dubai government issued a new decree a couple of months ago in September which effectively brought about a new rejuvenated Dubai International Arbitration Centre and a desire to streamline the options available for arbitration. So what the decree did was it abolished the Dubai Arbitration Institute, which was the body which was housing the joint venture of the Dubai International Financial Centre and the LCIA in an arbitration centre. And it also abolished the Maritime Arbitration Centre as well. And all the assets that those institutions had were transferred over to the Dubai International Arbitration Centre. So anybody who had ongoing arbitrations under the old institutions, the arbitrations could continue. In fact, we have a number of arbitrations under those rules at the moment, and they are continuing as are. But the idea is that everything will transition into one Dubai centre, which will then have a new court, it will have a new board of trustees, and it will be the one centre for Dubai arbitration going forward. So it's going to take some time to implement But uh, it certainly is the plan to sort of effectively nationalise, certainly from the Dubai perspective, the arbitration industry going forward. Thank you, Michelle. Chris, perhaps you could provide us with some highlights of what has been a really important development in mediation regionally and here in the UAE, and perhaps how mediation and arbitration can work together going forward as a result of this new law. Yeah, thank you, Sachin. Well, of course, mediation is deeply entrenched in local culture. Whilst commercial disputes are often resolved through arbitration and court actions, it's not uncommon for large disputes to settle amicably in uh, what is known as the majlis, which I believe is the Arabic word for a place for sitting, either CEO to CEO or guided by a respected third party. Formal mediation options are also available in both the Abu Dhabi and Dubai Chamber of Commerce, the Center for Amicable Resolution of Disputes in Dubai, 
and also in various free zones, including Dubai International Financial Center Court and Abu Dhabi Global Market Court. What this new law does is two really important things. First, it creates a comprehensive regulatory structure for mediation throughout the UAE for the first time, ensuring that a consistent framework applies in all of the Emirates. The new law provides for two types of mediation, judicial mediation and non-judicial mediation. In respect of judicial mediation, competent courts now have the power to refer disputes to mediation at any stage of a case, provided the parties consent. In respect of non-judicial mediation, parties who have entered into a mediation agreement may directly resort to a mediation and conciliation center before commencing any legal action. The two are subject to similar procedures. Each party to the dispute may submit a brief summary of claims to the mediator, but not to the other party, accompanied by supporting documents and evidence. Mediation sessions can be held remotely, uh, and the mediator has broad powers to conduct sessions and use whatever methods appropriate to bring the parties closer together, including holding private sessions with each party. The second really fundamental and important part of this new law is that it makes it very clear that mediation procedures conducted in accordance with the law are confidential, and no documents and information provided within them, including agreements or compromises, can be invoked before any court or other entity. That's incredibly important in the UAE, where there is generally no legal concept of without prejudice communications, which is, of course, a source of concern for parties who are attempting to reach an amicable settlement. Parties were particularly concerned to put anything down in writing or make any concessions at all for fear of it being thrown in their face in a formal dispute. So I think the new law is incredibly important in bringing about a structure for mediation going forwards and also resolving some of the concerns that parties may have had in the past about proceeding with mediation prior to a formal dispute. Yes, thanks, Chris. And I think it will be really interesting to see going forward the prevalence of the use of mediation in dispute scenarios here in, in the region as a consequence of the new law. Michelle, can I turn to you again? If we were sitting here a year ago, we would have been hoping for developments both in the use of arbitration, but also who uses arbitration and who is engaged in arbitration, in particular local nationals and in diversity terms, female counsel, female arbitrators. How do you see the last 12 months in terms of the development of that form of diversity in the industry? Yes, Sajjan, I think there has been strong and positive development in the industry in these areas. I think regionally there has been much progress made in terms of the increase of numbers of female arbitrators, particularly I think from a council perspective, it's been fairly balanced over the last 12 months or so um, beyond anyway. But certainly I think we are seeing a lot more female arbitrators being appointed on matters. From my own perspective, I've been approached uh, quite a number of times over the last 12 to 18 months to actually take on arbitrator appointments by both the global institutions, the ICC and the like, but also regional institutions. So I think that echoes the drive to support the pledge and, and increase the number of female arbitrators. 
There's also some regional organizations. There's a new Women in Arab Arbitration, which has been formed quite recently, and also Arbitral Women, which we are members of across the firm, but also myself, has recently signed up with the ADGM down in Abu Dhabi to further regional collaboration, etc. So I think there is a real recognition, certainly from the female perspective, and that's being driven forward. So I hope in the next 12 months, we'll see more of that. In relation to the position of Emiratis, I think there has been and there continues to be good representation from local law firms with obviously Emirati lawyers who are acting on arbitration matters. In terms of numbers and how that's developing, I think it's hard to say in terms of the statistics. But the UAE nationals more generally, I mean, a recent study in the ICC showed that the UAE was ninth out of 147 countries for the most frequent nationalities amongst parties in ICC arbitration. And I think to some degree would be a, you know, a, a good a proportion of representation, certainly across uh, both in the parties, but also uh, across the arbitrators and council more generally. So I think it's you know, certainly going in, in the right direction. Thank you, Michelle. Lawyers have often been accused of being brought dragging and screaming into the realms of technology. But my sense is over the last year or so, particularly dispute lawyers have embraced technology as they may have never done before. Chris, what's your sense of the uptake in technology and the use of technology in arbitral proceedings over the last 12 months and, and indeed beyond the, into the future? I think your point, Sachin, about lawyers being pulled kicking and screaming when it comes to technology is a good one. I've only been practicing for 10 years, but I remember it wasn't long ago that I was lugging around heavy boxes full of hearing bundles, obviously all hard copy and multiple files and filling up the room with folders. But now, of course, everything's been digitized. I think that the rate of change has certainly increased exponentially as a result of COVID to the extent that many hearings are, are of course, now either fully or partially virtual. Previously, as a profession, I think we may have been reluctant to test or rely on these technologies. You've heard multiple stories of uh, mute buttons being left on, difficulties with connections, and even cat avatars I heard the other day. It, it can be quite a scary world, but I think having been forced to adapt, the results have been quite surprising. We've certainly had a number of virtual hearings uh, over the last couple of years that have all run very smoothly. I think the use of virtual hearings and meetings is really here to stay. I read quite an interesting study carried out recently by Queen Mary University in Whiting case, which contained a number of statistics in respect to the use of technology and arbitration and the trends of the post-COVID world. For example, that, that stated that if a, a hearing could no longer be held in person, 79% of respondents would choose to proceed at the scheduled time as a virtual hearing. Only 16% would postpone the hearing until it could be held in person, while 4% would proceed with a documents-only award. Post-pandemic respondents would also prefer a mix of in-person and virtual formats for almost all types of interactions, including meetings and conferences. Wholly virtual formats are now narrowly preferred for procedural hearings, but many respondents would prefer to keep the option of in-person hearings open for substantive hearings rather than purely remote participation. 
I think that's correct. I think we recently actually had an in-person hearing where, in our view, that was a more appropriate thing to do. But it is a good thing to have virtual open as a possibility, particularly where costs are a concern or there's difficulties in flying everyone in country. For example, where the tribunal is spread across multiple countries and you have experts in various different places. So uh, I think the future will be a, a mix. Uh, and I think that has largely been a result of COVID and uh, forcing everyone to adapt. Right, thanks, Chris. Michelle, this is, of course, the time of year where we all get our crystal balls out and start to predict developments across a range of key industries, key subjects and topics. If you were to do so regarding how you saw the development of the arbitration industry locally here through next year, what would you anticipate would be the key developments? What's your general outlook on the arbitral industry here? I think we are going to see more of the nationalisation of the local arbitration industry. And I think that will be across a number of key centres across the region. So obviously the change that I've already discussed in relation to Dubai, I think that will obviously take off and gain prominence from the Dubai perspective. Abu Dhabi is already building up quite a strong platform down in the ATGM. And there was more recently the ICC set up a regional office there as well. So I think the regional platform for the international centres is gaining sort of momentum. Saudi Arabia is another area of focus. There's been quite a considerable sort of push from the Saudi commercial arbitration centre lately, and they themselves are looking to become a, a centre of choice for disputes which involve either parties or some other connection, whether the project or parties, to Saudi Arabia. And again, what they're looking at is getting international standard of arbitrators and rules, etc. going forward. So I think from, from that side, that there will be more of this sort of focusing on specific centres. I think the quality of the cases, the size of the disputes, that I think is only going to increase. Obviously, there's been issues through COVID and other disputes where the economies have been impacted. So I think from a dispute perspective as well, it's pretty busy. But I think the other area that I would also focus on is that I think the local court attitude in terms of enforcement of arbitral awards is something that we're seeing a real positive step on. And I think that will continue. I think the confidence in the region and the ability of the local courts to enforce and uphold arbitration awards will also add to the, the prominence and the sort of success of the regional centres in terms of being a centres of choice for arbitration going forwards. So that they're some of the areas that I would focus on. Yeah, that's very good and seemingly very positive. And in that regard, Chris, can I turn to you? There's been some debate over the last recent period about the usability of arbitration. I know we have been, as a firm, seeking to inform the debate as users look at how arbitration can be improved and their concerns. How do you think the arbitral industry can address those concerns to make arbitral proceedings much more of an effective and efficient tool as far as they're concerned? Yes, well, there have also been a number of attempts to address users' concerns 
regarding arbitration over recent years with mixed results. You had the IBA rules on the taking of evidence in 2020, which addressed some major changes, including cybersecurity and data protection, responses to objections to document production requests, and dealt with remote hearings, uh, which was certainly positive. But obviously, some commentators consider that it was a, a missed opportunity in some respects to clarify certain gray areas in respect of legal privilege and documentation in, in electronic form. Of course, the Prague rules were also issued in uh, 2019, which provided a procedural framework to help parties and arbitrators more efficiently conduct proceedings in international arbitration. And, and the goal of the Prague rules is to offer parties increased efficiency in the conduct of the arbitration by encouraging tribunals to take on a, a more active role in managing those proceedings. And we're yet to really see the outcome or the uptake of those changes. Having said that, there are, of course, still challenges ahead. And one thing that we're finding at the moment with our clients is that in, in some cases, clients will have a, a dispute which is of a relatively smaller amount compared to some of the more significant arbitrations that you have in this region. Their complaint is that the arbitration process currently exists is, is not really designed for those small disputes. It costs a lot of money, it takes a lot of time. And so something we're trying to do internally at Reed Smith is look at ways of reducing those costs and the input required both from the client side and our side and find more efficient ways to do so. So we're looking at rolling out an arbitration rights service over the course of next year in the hope that that will enable clients to deal with some of these more some nagging smaller disputes that, that come up and which aren't necessarily cost-effective to take through the traditional arbitration process. Yes, thanks, Chris. And I hope some of that will be seen in a positive light by users. Michelle, as we wrap up this particular series, what do you think we can look out for in terms of increasing the diversity in arbitral settings? Building on what you said has happened this year, but I guess it's important that that momentum is carried forward. So how do you see the outlook in that regard? Yeah, I do think that the progression will increase. Certainly from our own perspective, you know, we are actively any time that we are looking at arbitrator appointments and we're looking at shortlists, we are purposefully ensuring that there is diversity on our shortlists for presentation to the client. Of course, it's not always appropriate to make an appointment whether it's a female arbitrator or whether it's a, a local arbitrator, depending on the nature of the dispute. But that's something that we are positively doing. And I think that has a real impact. Likewise, to keep looking at the arbitrator lists. For example, I, the Saudi Arbitration Center that I mentioned earlier is keen to get more female arbitrators on its list and is inviting applications. So I will be doing my own application in the coming weeks. And again, I would hope that these positive steps by all of these arbitral institutions to also promote, and if we and our colleagues across other firms are doing likewise, then what's really enriching is to have an arbitral panel that is diverse amongst itself, either through the diversity of male-female ratio or civil common law or, or local and, and regional appointments. So I, I hope that we see less of the all sort of common law kind of QC panels and more diverse panels going forward. So I think it will happen and I think we all have a role to play for that. 
Thanks, Michelle. And finally, Chris, can I ask you to briefly sum up how you see arbitration, not just in the UAE where we're based, but in in the wider region developing over the next year or so? How do you see the outlook for regional arbitration? Yes, well, I think, as I mentioned before, that we'll certainly see the continuation of remotes and virtual hearings, not only as the pandemic continues, but also following where it's appropriate to do so. I think we'll see the rise of COVID-19 related arbitration disputes. Of course, as I uh, just mentioned, the impact of the pandemic is ongoing, but certainly we've started to see that coming through, and that includes disputes relating to force majeure, frustration, and claims from, for example, investors who benefit from an investment treaty in circumstances where perhaps the government hasn't taken a relief action in certain sectors. We'll most likely see increased disputes in construction and infrastructure sectors due to the financial strain of the pandemic. We've seen a number of contractors, big and small, in the region struggling. I've seen bonds being pulled and generally just liquidity drying up in the market as a whole. Uh, And then on the back of that, I suspect we'll see arbitration claims arising out of corporate insolvencies in most major economies, but also throughout the region and ongoing arbitrations where a counterparty is perhaps declared itself. Thank you, Chris. Well, I think that is all we have time for today. I would thank all those for listening in this session regarding the change in landscape here in the UAE. If you have any questions about the content that we've covered today, please do get in touch with any of the speakers. For more international arbitration thought leadership, podcasts, publications and upcoming events, or to learn more about our international arbitration practice, please do visit readsmith.com. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Readsmith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.